Hello and welcome to the Bearded Tits podcast. I'm your host Jack Perks and today's guest is Fergal Sharkey. He was the lead singer of The Undertones. He's also had a successful solo career and he's gone on to do more work behind the music industry. But in more recent years he's become somewhat of a river activist and he's championing the health of our rivers as they are in a sorry state. So we're going to talk to him about how a punk rock star became a river champion. But first, we're going to look at the news. Now, I'll try not to do a coronavirus story every week. However, this story did catch my eye. So the release of a last batch of checkered skipper butterflies uh, that were reintroduced to England after more than 40 years was prevented because of the lockdown. Now, the checkered skipper was always scarce, but it died out in 1976 due to changes in woodland management. This is its historical range around uh, mid-England. I think they did hang on in Scotland, as, as Patrick Barker mentioned in the butterfly podcast that we did a few weeks ago. Now, these butterflies were caught from Belgium and brought to the UK on the Eurostar. I've got this fantastic image of someone just sat down with a box full of butterflies, but I'm sure that's not how it went. Now, one bonus of lockdown is that the butterflies that were already reintroduced to the site would have had a relatively undisturbed time because everyone was indoors. So hopefully they had a bit of a bumper year despite not being more uh, released into that particular area. And this was partly run by Back to the Brink, which are an organisation I'm hoping to get on the podcast at some point. And we're going to talk to them a little bit about bringing back some of these species that are nearly on their way out. But one thing that is not on its way out is Fergal Sharkey, and that's who my guest is this week. So I was really interested to hear his thoughts and opinions on our British rivers because they are in a sorry state in many degrees. The amount of sewage, chemicals, and just general shit that is entering, and literal shit that is entering our rivers, is pretty shocking, to tell you the truth. So Fergal goes into detail about that, and we learn a little bit about his love for trout, fly fishing, and rivers in general. So here's our chat. How are you doing, Fergal? Thanks for joining the uh, the podcast today. Uh, Jack, my privilege, and thank you for asking. Uh, it's <laughs> always quite flattering when uh, somebody does those kind of things. It uh, has been a busy day, and in fact, it's been a quite a busy uh, busy week and a quite a busy few weeks. Yeah, well, I'm always seeing you pop up on on social media, uh, fighting for our rivers, which is fantastic to see that because it might seem a little bit peculiar for some people to see the lead man <laughs> in undertones is a fanatic river conservationist, and I think it's fair to say a chalkstream champion. So, where did this passion for rivers come from? Um, well, I did obviously just to clarify, I've been uh, accused of lots of things in my life, but never none of those before. I have to say, Jack. <laughs> oh, I, think, passion, I think you've earned it. The, the, the passion's a very, very straightforward one. I began developing an interest in fly fishing back in Ireland when I was 10, 11, maybe 12 years old, something like that. It's important perhaps to bear in mind in an Irish context, and particularly the northwest of Ireland, access to things like salmon and trout and sea trout, certainly in the early, mid-1970s, it's very universal. It's on everybody's doorstep. The cost of licenses and permits is fairly low by comparative standards. So it was not a particularly unusual hobby or pastime for a young man to be taken up. That obviously uh, fast forwards probably 50 years. When I became chairman of a 
little old club called the Amal Magna Fishery, which is the oldest fly fishing club in England, still standing fishing the same stretch of water after almost 180 years. And wow. that brought me into direct, close, personal, up close and personal contact with uh, not only the River Lee itself in Hertfordshire, but more generically rivers throughout the south and the southeast of England. So unlike, say, that in England, for example, you, you tend to associate salmon and trout fishing with more of the upper class. In, in, in Ireland, it's not the same then. It's more of a, everyone can have a go at it. Uh, ironically enough, I, until I came to this country, I never understood why anybody wanted to go course fishing. Oh, right. <laughs> Such was the level of my, naive, my naivety and the lack of education. Um, because in Ireland, certainly at that point through the 60s, 70s and 80s, and possibly still to an extent today, uh, everybody went fishing for salmon and trout. There was no reason on earth that you would want to go and sit uh, by a canal, few that we have in Ireland, to catch a roach. Because yeah. you could just get on your bike, cycle over into Donegal, there was any number of salmon rivers, and you stood a reasonably good prospect of going home that evening with a small gristle of some kind. Yeah, so yeah, I can understand if you've got that much salmon fishing, you'd, you'd definitely have a go with it. So when you're on tour then, would you, would you have a rod packed away? Would you kind of fish uh, a little bit? I, I didn't through that period of my life. No. Um, I was clearly too busy involved in rock and roll. <laughs> uh, I guess, yeah, when you've got that, then it's probably uh, uh, to forgive you to kind of get stuck into if, the other stuff. If you're asking me, did later in my life, as my career evolved and changed, did I, for example, on one occasion, accept a speaking engagement to give the keynote address at a conference in North America uh, on the subject of copyright? and did something that persuade me to walk out of my office in London and go all the way to North America may have had something to do with the limestone rivers in Pennsylvania, which I had never fished before. <laughs> Clearly, I would suggest that's a scurrilous accusation. I'd have to deny that I ever contemplated yeah. such a thing. So later in my life, absolutely, I accepted uh, meetings and speaking engagements at conferences on behalf of the British music industry, clearly unattracted to the idea that uh, I would be a couple of hours away from the uh, uh, Blue Mountains in southeastern Australia, or indeed Pennsylvania in the northwest of America, and on and on and on. I, I always try and keep a, not that I ever dust it off, but I always try and keep a rod in the car if I, if I am working away, just in case you get an hour, because it Very is nice to yeah, I think so. Do, do you, is it only fly you do, or do you, do you fish for everything now, or is it just, just fly predominantly? Um, it's, all, it's still fly fishing. Yeah, I, okay. Because of the way my life developed, I'm afraid I genuinely, and it's probably quite a, 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 a sad thing to be saying, I genuinely would not know my way around a float setup if someone <laughs> actually would have to sit there and put the whole rig together for me. I've, and as for bottom feeders, I've, yeah, I hear about these things, but I've actually no idea what it involves or what it's... No, it, fair enough. There's, there's actually quite a, a thriving culture of people fly fishing for coarse fish now in the UK. You know, a lot of people target things like chub and, and roach yep. on the fly, and it's, uh, it's becoming more popular. I don't know if it'll overtake salmon anytime soon, but uh, people are giving catch, it a go. We catch quite a few of them at the Animal Magna Fishery. Oh, okay. Quite a good, healthy population of coarse fish, along with the brown trout. 
um, and uh, it's not uncommon to catch little dace and chub and all kinds of things will come up and grab at the fly. Yeah, they, they obviously don't know it's not real, do they? So they're going to gobble it up. Well, I believe it was a little man called Isaac Walton said, is it not an art to deceive a trout with a fly? A trout. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, they're pretty, pretty switched on to it. Uh, chalk streams are, are such a unique habitat. And I, I keep seeing different percentages everywhere you look. It's somewhere between 80 and 90% of them um, are, are in England. And the entire world, we've, we've yeah. got most of them. It's, it's our Great Barrier Reef. Yeah. So, so what is it that makes them so special? Um, it's quite simply that layer of chalk. Uh, that's the clues in the title, as they say. Yeah. Um, it's not exclusively, but you'll deal with the complaints. Um, there is a <laughs> band of chalk that pretty much, not 100%, but pretty much slams into the Norfolk coast, runs diagonally across the south and southeast of England, and disappears again into the English Channel, somewhere round about the south of Hampshire, Dorset, and reappears in northern France in a little enclave in Normandy. It is that layer of chalk um, that makes the White Cliffs of Dover white and yeah. creates the needles and indeed gives the name to the Isle of Wight and indeed creates Salisbury Plain. And that whole landscape is that layer of chalk. Now, what it actually does is when it rains, that chalk absorbs the water and then provides the best natural water filter nature has ever invented. And that water that falls as rain will eventually reappear from springs and fissures in that chalk, anything from weeks, months, decades, and in some cases, even anything up to 100 years later. Now, bearing in mind, it's now just been filtered through this incredible organic natural filter. So what comes out of these springs is the clearest water you've ever seen in a proper chalk stream. You can sit there and count every pebble, even in six, seven, eight, ten feet of water. Because it's coming out of a massive underground reservoir, the chalk aquifer, it comes out at a reasonably constant rate. So they shouldn't, in theory, fluctuate very much in response to rains and storms and floods. It should be a relatively consistent level of flow. And ironically enough, at or near enough, 10 degrees centigrade. It yeah. doesn't matter if it's three feet of snow outside. A chalk stream should be around about 10 degrees centigrade. It really doesn't matter if it's about 20 degrees outside. The chalk stream should round about be about 10 degrees centigrade. Now, there's exceptions to all of those rules, but generically speaking, this phenomenally pure source of water at a reasonably constant rate of supply at a reasonably constant temperature. And you've now just created the perfect ecosystem for life to thrive and develop. They and they are, you know, if you've never seen a chalk stream, I suppose people it's not like there's a sign next to every chalk stream saying this is a chalk <laughs> stream, but if you've never seen one, they are absolutely incredible, incredible habitats. And I'm and I'm going to try not to trigger you, uh, but it's been quoted that rivers have never been cleaner. But as me and you well know, uh, for lack of a better word, a lot of them are still open sewers, and and in fact, I think a lot of lowland English rivers are classed as poor uh, by the water framework directive still. So um, I know you could go on and on, but I'll, I'll try and uh, distill this down. So what, what are the major issues of, of chalk streams at the moment? Well, one of the things that's been keeping me busy today is 
as part of the Water Framework Directive, every four years, the Environment Agency and DEFRA government are charged with publishing an updated status report on water bodies in England. And it looks only specifically in England. So I can tell you here today that the overriding goal of the Water Framework Directive was that 100% of rivers would reach good surface water status by 2015. Here we are five years later. Yeah. There is not one single river in England that reaches good overall surface water status. That's generically brought about by two components. One is the ecological makeup of the river, the fish, the invertebrates, and all that kind of good stuff. 86% of rivers in England do not qualify as good ecological status. Wow. The second component of that is chemical status, and there is not a single river in England that meets good chemical status. It's a train wreck from one end to the other, and the Environment Agency have been overseen and responsible for delivering the objectives of that piece of legislation for the last 17 years. So what is the, I mean, it's a tricky one, isn't it? What, what's the solution? I mean, is, is there any light at the end of the tunnel for this sort of thing? Or is, is um, that kind of a bit fanciful? Well, it's, it, it actually, ironically enough, it, it's not fanciful. No. All that actually needs to happen is for the Environment Agency to go and enforce the law as it currently stands. For example, the chalk streams are predominantly affected by two primary things. One is over abstraction. The law was changed. The law used to be that if the Environment Agency revoked the water company's abstraction license, they would have to compensate the water company. That law was changed six years ago. That if that abstraction is causing serious damage to that river, the Environment Agency can revoke that license without compensating the water company. Right. You want to take a guess how many water company licenses have been revoked directly as a result of causing serious damage to the environment? I'm going to hazard a guess saying none, but you can... Uh... Correct. No. <laughs> so the law is there. The law is quite clear. Yeah. And there is no cost to the Environment Agency. As it turns out, uh, the UK was taken to the European Court of Justice in 2012 by the European Commission for breaching the Urban Wastewater Treatment Directive, i.e. we're talking about dumping sewage into England's rivers. Yeah. And the European Commission had an issue with the UK. The European Court of Justice ruled that the UK was non-compliant with the directive. In plain English, the UK was breaking the law. The court also ruled that this should only ever be contemplated in, and I am quoting, exceptional circumstances. We now know last year water companies in England spent over one and a half million hours dumping sewage into rivers in England. Can someone please tell me eight years after the European Court of Justice ruled it should only ever happen in exceptional circumstances, what was exceptional about over one and a half million hours? It's, it's incredible when you look at the, the stats and the figures. So have you got a, uh, a theory behind why, why they do it? Just because no one's challenging them? They just think they can get away with it? Or? Um, oh, quite, quite simply for me, it boils down to a very simple thing. The Environment Agency are failing to deliver 
on their statutory obligations. The board and the senior management have proved time and time again, and today is the most damning indictment of everyone were needed that the Environment Agency has become nothing more than a hotbed of mediocrity and incompetence. And there are, there are some organisations, uh, NGOs predominantly, that are kind of fighting the good fight. I think you're, you're a supporter of salmon and trout conservation, is that fair to say? Uh, ab absolutely, and yeah. Nick and his team have been doing a phenomenal job, um, and it's now quite clear that discussing this with the Environment Agency, as people have been doing for 30 years, has proved utterly ineffectual. And I can't go into the details of it uh, at the minute, but yeah. it became apparent in the public domain yesterday that uh, I have now put a crack legal team together and we will now be taking a very different approach from the one that has been taken historically. Yeah, I mean, like you say, that people just neglect the rivers. And if these organisations that are meant to be protecting them aren't living up to their mandate, then... It's, it's good to know that people like yourself and, and salmon and trout conservation are um, putting them to um, task. Well, well we, should, we shouldn't have to. That's the job. No, no, yeah, no, exactly. Environment Agency. Yeah, yeah, no, it, and that's, that's the shame, isn't it? The Environment Agency was given a clear instruction by Parliament to protect, maintain and develop these rivers. Well, here we are today. We know there is not a single river in England that meets good overall environmental status. Not one. Yeah. Almost 30 years after the Environment Agency was established. So would they like to explain to me what they've been doing for 30 years to protect, maintain and develop these rivers? Yeah. It doesn't not, sound like it. It doesn't sound like they've done a lot, does it, from when you look at the, the, the stats and the figures. And, and are you seeing this on, because you, you mentioned that, that is, is the Lee your local river? That's your, uh, your... It is. The, yeah. I'm on the fishery. We own fishing and repairing rights in two and a half miles of the River Lee. And you're, and you're seeing uh, the, the same problems that you mentioned on there, are you? Uh, well, the, the Amon Magna fishery is slightly different position. Okay. In that this, what got me into all of this, in the late 1990s, the club made a complaint to the Environment Agency where water seemed to be disappearing out of the river. The flow okay. seemed to be dropping and dropping quite remarkably. That, as it transpired, began this 12, 13-year circular conversation between the Environment Agency, the club, and Thames Water. And it was only when I became chairman that I began to push harder to find out what was going on to discover that a report actually had been written in 2003, identifying exactly what the problem was, how to fix it, and nobody had ever acted upon it. <laughs> so working with Fish Legal, uh, the Amal Magna and myself and Fish Legal, we spent probably a year and a half prepping uh, a case to take the Environment Agency to the High Court. Thankfully, at the last minute, we managed to resolve the water issue. We okay. now have our flow back. It is behaving in a reasonably good fashion. Has it come on leaps and bounds over the last five years? Absolutely, without question. Yeah. But nonetheless, one of the easy tests that you can do to a river is to simply test for the level of phosphate in a river. Okay. So during those recent quite heavy rainstorms we had, we were seeing phosphate levels of 
0 0.76, 0 0.79 per milligram per liter, when in a healthy river, it should be less than something like 0 0.05. Right, Let me okay. say again, we were seeing levels of 0 0.76. So definitely, definitely more than they uh, well, should have been. As we, now, as we now know today, the Emerald Magna is not unusual because every single river in the country has failed a chemical test. Every single river. And that's the thing, isn't it? When you're working, uh, well, when, whether you walk your dog along the river, or you're fishing on the river, you get to know every inch of it. And you know if something's not right. And it's almost like, I don't want to sound too um too romanticizing but they become a bit like a friend in a way if you're on along a river all the time so it, you become quite protective i i, I live uh, close to the trent and some of the tributaries of the trent yeah uh, and i know pretty well and there is some some massive water quality issues and you want to uh, you know correct those but it's it's difficult when you're a one-man band so it's great to see uh like you say you're you're trying to change something to these to these river systems particularly local um, ones but all over yeah. Bear with me one second, because I did a whole series of tweets the other day about the river uh, Trent. Oh, yeah. Oh, did you? Go. I did. So, for example, if somebody wants to go and have a look at my Twitter feed, you will see on August the 31st, I posted two little pictures, one showing every sewage overflow upstream of the National Canoe Centre in Nottingham. Yes, yeah, yeah, I know it. And I can now tell you that upstream... The storm sewage overflows in 2019 spent a grand total of 15,921 hours dumping sewage into the River Trent upstream from the National Canoe Centre. That's the equivalent of 663 full days worth of sewage. Jesus. Now you want to tell me that the River Trent's got some water quality issues? <laughs> <laughs> when you, you know you see a a turd passing you by when you're canoeing or something like that. It's not, uh, doesn't fill you with much enthusiasm, does it? And that change in the chemical status of the river then impacts upon invariably the whole ecology of the river, the plant life, the ecosystems, the kinds of plants that will grow there, the kinds of invertebrate and insects that will then feed on those plants uh, and be able to reproduce and therefore the kind of fish life. To give you a very simple example, one of the primary indicators of a good, healthy looking chalk stream is ranunculus. Yes, yes. It's very, very particular about the quality of water it's prepared to grow in and about the velocity and speed that that water is moving at. Now, if you can get ranunculus grown in your river, as I frequently call it, that to an invertebrate is a five star hotel with a three star Michelin restaurant attached. <laughs> You get the ranunculus, you're going to get the invertebrates, you'll get the trout, and you'll get the grayling. Yeah. It's a simple idea, and all based on a single plant. I absolutely guarantee you, upstream on the River Trent, I would be really amazed and delighted if there was a single blade of ranunculus anywhere near 663 days worth of sewage being dumped into that river. I can't, you know, in all that, I mean, I'm born and bred in Nottingham. I can't, I can't ever think of ever seeing ranunculus in the Trent. So I, I'd have to agree with that, unfortunately. I don't think there's a lot of it, a lot of it in there. So, someone was telling me, uh, I don't know if you've had much experience with pearl mussels, but they are yeah. meant to be the, the height of water quality. In I don't think you get them in chalk streams, but in some of the, the upland rivers. Yeah. Um, 
they they can they cannot live i think they can only live in rivers even better than the highest quality that we have and they're um they're struggling a little bit but we we've got a few hanging on but if you've got them you know that the rivers is about as good as it can be if okay. you've got uh, mussels in well, it, listen, it, it's a valid point because something that's overlooked in this whole conversation about the Water Framework Directive and good status. Good status, by the way, is actually only kind of passable. There is another categorization and that is high. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So on the basis that there's no river actually meets good overall status, we can assume that there's also no river gets anywhere close to being high overall environmental no. status. no. No, no, which is uh, which is a little bit depressing when I think about this podcast. So I think I should probably try and end it on a, on a relatively uh, high note. So what I will say is, where where have you been uh, fishing at the moment? Uh, well, I'm off up the ML Magna because obviously the uh, trout season generically ends at the end of September. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, as we head in towards the end of the year, November, December, uh, mummy and daddy trout tend to do what mummy and daddy trout want to do. <laughs> um, so tomorrow might well possibly be my last day. Okay. I'm head, heading up to the Elmo Magna Fishery with a little couple of friends. In recent weeks, I've been down on the Kennet and down on the Itching, uh, down on the Test. And uh. I, I'm lucky enough that I get quite around quite a bit and get to fish some of the more uh, interesting looking rivers in this country. The thing, if you will listen to end in a high, for me, what days like today does is now simply clarify what those of us that have an interest in these rivers, what we now need to go and do. So if I would suggest to anybody, don't ever get depressed about it. Don't get sad about it. Don't get overwhelmed about it. Get bloody angry, get motivated and get out there and change it. That's (laughs) all I'm doing. So what, what if, so if people listening to this podcast, they feel moved to do something, what, what can they do to try and make it? Write, write to your local MP. Yeah. And when you've done that, then write to the Secretary of State. And when you've done that, write to the Minister for Water. And when you've done that, write to the Minister for the Environment. And when you've done that, write to the Prime Minister. And when you've run through that list, get back to me, I'll give you some more. <laughs> I think we'll get our, get our pens ready and... Uh see if we can get get something done look it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you fergal and um hopefully that's kind of given people an insight into our rivers pleasure's all mine and thank you for the invitation that was fergal sharkey so i think it's absolutely great what fergal does it's difficult to kind of get people enthused about rivers and particularly what lives beneath rivers and if you're just a normal ngo pushing the good fight it can be tricky to get the media to pick up on it However, if you're a former punk rock singer, then the media is far more likely to take an interest. And I think Fergal using his sort of uh, fame as a catalyst for river conservation is a brilliant idea. And he's done a lot of work to kind of help our rivers and, and challenge some of the people who are not quite doing what they should be doing. So hats off to Fergal for all that kind of stuff. Now that brings me on to the next part of the podcast, which is a top five. And I thought sticking on the theme of freshwater conservation, I'm going to go through five freshwater charities that you should check out and some of the stuff that they're doing. So it might sound quite obvious, but I'm going to start with the Rivers Trust. They're an umbrella organisation for 60 local member trusts, and they're the only group of environmental charities in the UK and Ireland dedicated to protecting and improving river environments for the benefit of people and wildlife. 
So they work on things like pollution, plastics in rivers, climate change, lots and lots of things on a local level. That's one of the things I really love about the Rivers Trust, they're a real grassroots charity. So no matter where you are in the country, there'll be some kind of Rivers Trust locally. So you can look on the Umbrella website, you can find your area and it will show you what Rivers Trust operate in that area. So have a look on the website and give them a look. Now collectively, the Rivers Trust between 2019 and 2020 have created or restored 71 wetlands. They've eased, removed or passed 103 barriers. They've planted 223,990 trees. And that's just a few of the things that they've done to improve rivers. You can have a look on the website, it goes into more detail. So they're a great charity as a whole. And as I say, on a local level, they're absolutely fantastic. Now, the second one that I would recommend is the Dragonfly Society. Now, we had Fiona McKenna on not too long ago, and she works for them. Now, specifically, obviously, that charity is targeting damselflies and dragonflies, but the work that they do obviously benefits a whole host of freshwater creatures. And it can be very difficult to champion some of these creatures, as I said before, particularly dragonflies. Their larvae are unseen to most of us and the big adults can be misunderstood. So the work that this charity does to engage the public, try and get kids enthused, is incredibly valuable. A little bit like the Rivers Trust, they also have local groups, although not separate charities in themselves, but more or less each county has a recorder and a group for dragonflies. So if you're down south in England, there's higher numbers of species, obviously further north, you get fewer, but you might get more specialist species of dragonflies. Now the, the organisation has around 1,800 members, so pretty healthy for, for a fairly specialist group. Definitely check them out. If you want to encourage dragonflies into your garden pond, or you just want to go see them out and about, it's an organisation you should definitely look into. Now the third one is the Wild Trout Trust, and it says pretty much what it is on the tin. They are trying to support trout. However, like many of these small specialist charities, they obviously inadvertently support lots of other creatures when specifically creating habitat for something like a trail. Now, most of the members, supporters and staff are anglers. However, they are not an angling organisation. It is just a passion for wild trout and rivers uh, that drives this charity. Uh, it was really tough to pick between these and salmon and trout conservation, but I didn't think there was any point having both of them on this because they have very similar goals. But you should check out salmon and trout conservation also. What I like about the Wild Trout Trust, again, is it's got that grassroots feel. It's a small group of people working together to help our rivers and support local wild trout populations. And one of their main mantras is to make sure that trout are there for future generations to see, as trout are obviously very sensitive to water quality and are a great indicator of a healthy river system. Now, the only thing that could probably rival a trout is river flies. And that brings me on to the fourth one, the river fly partnership. So again, similar, it's not an angling organization, but many of the people who work and support it are fly fishermen. And the idea of this is to support our river systems by doing surveys, working out what's living in there. And obviously a healthy river is gonna have a nice number of different river flies, whereas a poor river will have relatively few of those. Now you can do surveys and if you then end up with a year where there are no river flies found, then there's a good chance that there was a pollution incident. And then you can do some detective work from there. So the river fly partnership are real uh, ground, you know, feet on the ground, 
searching our rivers and making sure that they're in a healthy state because the more river flies that we have, the more food there is for things like trout, for swallows, all the birds that eat these sort of things. So they're incredibly important for a healthy ecosystem. So the Riverfly Partnership is a great charity and I definitely support those. Now the final one is a little bit larger and that's the Freshwater Habitats Trust. So they lean more towards things like ponds and wetlands, but they do also do moving water as well. They do a lot of public outreach and citizen science. For example, they encourage people to log all the frog spawn in their ponds each year, how many clumps there are of it, and then that gives you more of a national idea of where things like that are doing and how they're doing. So the Freshwater Habitats Trust is a great charity. And I think all of these charities obviously will accept donations. If you're feeling particularly kind, you can donate to those. But they're well worth checking out. They're all doing fantastic work for our freshwater ecosystems. So that brings me to the end of the podcast. As always, I would encourage you to check out the Wildlife Exposed TV YouTube channel. That has some of the highlights of these podcasts. And also follow us on Twitter at TitBearded. Now, next Tuesday, our podcast is going to be with Adrian Shine, who has spent nearly 40 years studying the Loch Ness Monster. Yes, we are going down that route. So I'm going to be interviewing about what he thinks the Loch Ness Monster is, what it could actually be. Is it a giant plesiosaur? Is it... Fuck knows what. We're going to be chatting about all this kind of weird stuff. He also has an impressive beard. Not that you'll be able to see that on the podcast, but it puts mine to shame. So I can't wait to chat to Adrian about a bit of cryptozoology because who doesn't love a little bit of that? Anyway, I've been your host, Jack Perks. This has been the Bearded Tits Podcast, and I will see you next week. Cheers.